Chapter 50, Part 2 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 5, Chapter 50, Part 2. The slaves of domestic tyranny may vainly exult in their national independence, but the Arab is personally free, and he enjoys in some degree the benefits of society without forfeiting the prerogatives of nature. In every tribe, superstition, or gratitude, or fortune has exalted a particular family above the heads of their equals. The dignities of sheikh and emir invariably descend in this chosen race but the order of secession is loose and precarious, and the most worthy or aged of the noble kinsmen are preferred to the simple though important office of composing disputes by their advice and guiding valor by their example. Even a female of sense and spirit has been permitted to command this countryman of Zenobia. The momentary injunction of several tribes produces an army. Their more lasting union constitutes a nation, and the supreme chief the emir of emirs, whose banner is displayed at their head, may deserve, in the eyes of strangers, the honors of the kingly name. If the Arabian princes abuse their power, they are quickly punished by the desertion of their subjects, who had been accustomed to a mild and parental jurisdiction. Their spirit is free, their steps are unconfined, the desert is open, and the tribes and families are held together by a mutual and voluntary compact. The softer natives of Yemen supported the pomp and majesty of a monarch, but if he could not leave his palace without endangering his life, the active powers of government must have been devolved on his nobles and magistrates. The cities of Mecca and Medina present, in the heart of Asia, the form, or rather the substance, of a commonwealth. The grandfather of Mohammed and his lineal ancestors appear in foreign and domestic transactions as the princes of their country. But they reigned, like Pericles at Athens, or the Medici at Florence, by the opinion of their wisdom and integrity. Their influence was divided with their patrimony. And the scepter was transferred from the uncles of the prophet to a younger branch of the tribe of Koresh. On solemn occasions they convened the assembly of the people and since mankind must be either compelled or persuaded to obey the use and reputation of oratory among the ancient arabs is the clearest evidence of public freedom but their simple freedom was of a very different cast from the nice and artificial machinery of the greek and roman republics in which each member possessed an undivided share of the civil and political rights of the community in the more simple state of the Arabs, the nation is free, because each of her sons disdains a base submission to the will of a master. His breast is fortified by the austere virtues of courage, patience, and sobriety. The love of independence prompts him to exercise the habits of self-command, and the fear of dishonor guards him from the meaner apprehension of pain, of danger, and of death. The gravity and firmness of the mind is conspicuous in his outward demeanor. His speech is low, weighty, and concise. He is seldom provoked to laughter. His only gesture is that of stroking his beard, the venerable symbol of manhood. 
and the sense of his own importance teaches him to accost his equals without levity and his superiors without awe the liberty of the saracens survived their conquests the first caliphs indulged the bold and familiar language of their subjects they ascended the pulpit to persuade and edify the congregation nor was it before the seat of empire was removed to the tigris that the abbasides adopted the proud and pompous ceremonial of the persian and byzantine courts in the study of nations and men we may observe the causes that render them hostile or friendly to each other that tend to narrow or enlarge to mollify or exasperate the social character the separation of the arabs from the rest of mankind has accustomed them to confound the ideas of stranger and enemy and the poverty of the land has introduced a maxim of jurisprudence which they believe and practice to the present hour they pretend that in the division of the earth the rich and fertile climates were assigned to the other branches of the human family and that the posterity of the outlaw ismail might recover by fraud or force a portion of inheritance of which he had been unjustly deprived according to the remark of pliny the arabian tribes are equally addicted to theft and merchandise the caravans that traverse the desert are ransomed or pillaged and their neighbors since the remote times of job and sesostris have been the victims of their rapacious spirit if a bedouin discovers from afar a solitary traveller he rides furiously against him crying with a loud voice undress thyself thy aunt my wife is without a garment a ready submission entitles him to mercy resistance will provoke the aggressor and his own blood must expiate the blood which he presumes to shed in legitimate defence a single robber or a few associates are branded with their genuine name but the exploits of a numerous band assume the character of a lawful and honourable war the temper of a people thus armed against mankind was doubly inflamed by the domestic license of rapine murder and vengeance in the constitution of europe the right of peace and war is now confined to a small and the actual exercise to a much smaller list of respectable potentates but each arab with impunity and renown might point his javelin against the life of his countrymen the union of the nation consisted only in a vague resemblance of language and manners and in each community the jurisdiction of the magistrate was mute and impotent of the time of ignorance which preceded mohammed seventeen hundred battles are recorded by tradition hostility was embittered with the rancor of civil faction and the recital in prose or verse of an obsolete feud was sufficient to rekindle the same passions among the descendants of the hostile tribes in private life every man at least every family was the judge and avenger of its own cause the nice sensibility of honor which weighs the insult rather than the injury sheds its deadly venom on the quarrels of the arabs the honor of their women and of their beards is most easily wounded an indecent action a contemptuous word can be expiated only by the blood of the offender and such is their patient inveteracy that they expect whole months and years the opportunity of revenge a fine or compensation for murder is familiar to the barbarians of every age but in arabia the kinsmen of the dead are at liberty to accept the atonement or to exercise with their own hands the law of retaliation 
the refined malice of the Arabs refuses even the head of the murderer, and substitutes an innocent to the guilty person, and transfers the penalty to the best and most considerable of the race by whom they have been injured. If he falls by their hands, they are exposed in their turn to the dangers of reprisals. The interest and principle of the bloody debt are accumulated. The individuals of either family lead a life of malice and suspicion, and fifty years may sometimes elapse before the account of vengeance be finally settled. This sanguinary spirit, ignorant of pity or forgiveness, has been moderated, however, by the maxims of honor, which require in every private encounter some decent equality of age and strength, of numbers and weapons. An annual festival of two, perhaps of four months, was observed by the Arabs before the time of Muhammad, during which their swords were religiously sheathed, both in foreign and domestic hostility, and this partial truce is more strongly expressive of the habits of anarchy and warfare. But the spirit of rapine and revenge was attempered by the milder influence of trade and literature. The solitary peninsula is encompassed by the most civilized nations of the ancient world. The merchant is the friend of mankind, and the annual caravans imported the first seeds of knowledge and politeness into the cities and even the camps of the desert. Whatever may be the pedigree of the Arabs, their language is derived from the same original stock with the Hebrew, the Syriac, and the Chaldean tongues. The independence of the tribes was marked by their peculiar dialects, but each, after their own, allowed a just preference to the pure and perspicuous idiom of Mecca. In Arabia, as well as in Greece, the perfection of language outstripped the refinement of manners, and her speech could diversify the fourscore names of honey, the two hundred of a serpent, the five hundred of a lion, the thousand of a sword, at a time when this copious dictionary was entrusted to the memory of an illiterate people. The monuments of the Homerites was inscribed with an obsolete and mysterious character, but the Cufic letters, the groundwork of the present alphabet, were invented on the banks of the Euphrates, and the recent invention was taught at Mecca by a stranger who settled in that city after the birth of Muhammad. The arts of grammar, of meter, and of rhetoric were unknown to the freeborn eloquence of the Arabians, but their penetration was sharp, their fancy luxuriant, their wit strong and sententious, and their more elaborate compositions were addressed with energy and effect to the minds of their hearers. The genius and merit of a rising poet was celebrated by the applause of his own and the Kinyard tribes. A solemn banquet was prepared, and a chorus of women, striking their timbals and displaying the pomp of their nuptials, sung in the presence of their sons and husbands the felicity of their native tribe, that a champion had now appeared to vindicate their rights, that a herald had raised his voice to immortalize their renown. The distant or hostile tribes resorted to an annual fair which was abolished by the fanaticism of the first Muslims, a national assembly that must have contributed to refine and harmonize the barbarians. Thirty days were employed in the exchange, not only of corn and wine, but of eloquence and poetry. The prize was disputed by the generous emulation of the bards. The victorious performance was deposited in the archives of princes and emirs, and we may read in our own language the seven original poems which were inscribed in letters of gold and suspended in the temple of Mecca. The Arabian poets were the historians and moralists of the age, 
and if they sympathized with the prejudices, they inspired and crowned the virtues of their countrymen. The indissoluble union of generosity and valor was the darling theme of their song, and when they pointed their keenest satire against a despicable race, they affirmed, in the bitterness of reproach, that the men knew not how to give, nor the women to deny. The same hospitality which was practiced by Abraham and celebrated by Homer is still renewed in the camps of the Arabs. The ferocious Bedouins, the terror of the desert, embrace, without inquiry or hesitation, the stranger who dares to confide in their honor and to enter their tent. His treatment is kind and respectful. He shares the wealth or the poverty of his host, and, after a needful repose, he is dismissed on his way with thanks, with blessings, and perhaps with gifts. The heart and hand are more largely expanded by the wants of a brother or a friend, but the heroic acts that could deserve the public applause must have surpassed the narrow measure of discretion and experience. A dispute had arisen, who, among the citizens of Mecca, was entitled to the prize of generosity, and a successive application was made to the three who were deemed most worthy of the trial. Abdallah, the son of Abbas, had undertaken a distant journey, and his foot was in the stirrup when he heard the voice of a suppliant. O son of the uncle of the apostle of God, I am a traveler and in distress. He instantly dismounted to present the pilgrim with his camel, her rich comparison, and a purse of four thousand pieces of gold, accepting only the sword, either for its intrinsic value, or as the gift of an honored kinsman. The servant of Caïs informed the second suppliant that his master was asleep, but he immediately added, Here is a purse of seven thousand pieces of gold as it is all we have in the house, and here is an order that will entitle you to a camel and a slave. The master, as soon as he awoke, praised and enfranchised his faithful steward, with the gentle reproof that, by respecting his slumbers, he had stinted his bounty. The third of these heroes, the blind Araba, at the hour of prayer was supporting his steps on the shoulders of two slaves. Alas, he replied, my coffers are empty, but these you may sell. If you refuse, I renounce them. At these words, pushing away the youths, he groped along the wall with his staff. The character of Hatem is the perfect model of Arabian virtue. He was brave and liberal, an eloquent poet, and a successful robber. Forty camels were roasted at his hospitable feasts, and at the prayer of a suppliant enemy he restored both the captives and the spoil. The freedom of his countrymen disdained the laws of justice. They proudly indulged the spontaneous impulse of pity and benevolence. The religion of the Arabs, as well as of the Indians, consisted in the worship of the sun, the moon, and the fixed stars, a primitive and specious mode of superstition. The bright luminaries in the sky display the visible image of a deity. Their number and distance convey to a philosophic or even to a vulgar eye, the idea of boundless space. The character of eternity is marked on these solid globes that seem incapable of corruption or decay. The regularity of their motions may be ascribed to a principle of reason or instinct, and their real or imaginary influence encourages the vain belief that the earth and its inhabitants are the object of their peculiar care. The science of astronomy was cultivated at Babylon, but the school of the Arabs was a clear firmament, 
and a naked plain. In their nocturnal marches they steered by the guidance of the stars. Their names and order and daily station were familiar to the curiosity and devotion of the Bedouin, and he was taught by experience to divide in twenty-eight parts the zodiac of the moon, and to bless the constellations who refreshed with salutary rains the thirst of the desert. The reign of the heavenly orbs could not be extended beyond the visible sphere, and some metaphysical powers were necessary to sustain the transmigration of souls and the resurrection of bodies. A camel was left to perish on the grave, that he might serve his master in another life, and the invocation of departed spirits implies that they were still endowed with consciousness and power. I am ignorant, and I am careless, of the blind mythology of the barbarians, of the local deities, of the stars, of the air, of the earth, of their sex, or titles, their attributes, or subordination. Each tribe, each family, each independent warrior created and changed the rites and object of his fantastic worship. But the nation, in every age, has bowed to the religion as well as to the language of Mecca. The genuine antiquity of the Kaaba ascends beyond the Christian era. In describing the coast of the Red Sea, the Greek historian Diodorus has remarked, between the Thamudites and the Sabaeans, a famous temple whose superior sanctity was revered by all the Arabians, the linen or silken veil, which is annually renewed by the Turkish emperor, was first offered by a pious king of the Homerites who reigned seven hundred years before the time of Mohammed. A tent or a caravan might suffice for the worship of the savages, but an edifice of stone and clay has been erected in its place, and the art and power of the monarchs of the East have been confined to the simplicity of the original model. A spacious portico encloses the quadrangle of the Kaaba, a square chapel twenty-four cubits long, twenty-three broad, and twenty-seven high, a door and a window admit the light. The double roof is supported by three pillars of wood. A spout, now of gold, discharges the rainwater, and the wells, Zemzem, is protected by a dome of accidental pollution. The tribe of Koyesh, by fraud or force, had acquired the custody of the Kaaba. The sacerdotal office devolved through four lineal descendants to the grandfather of Muhammad, and the family of the Hashemites, from whence he sprung, was the most respectable and sacred in the eyes of their country. The precincts of Mecca enjoyed the rites of sanctuary, and in the last month of each year the city and the temple were crowned with a long train of pilgrims, who presented their vows and offerings in the house of God. The same rites which are now accomplished by the faithful Mussulmen were invented and practiced by the superstition of the idolaters. At an awful distance they cast away their garments. Seven times, with hasty steps, they encircled the Kaaba, and kissed the black stone. Seven times they visited and adored the adjacent mountains. Seven times they threw stones into the valley of Mina, and the pilgrimage was achieved, as at the present hour, by a sacrifice of sheep and camels, and the burial of their hair and nails in the consecrated ground. Each tribe either found or introduced in the Kaaba their domestic worship. The tribe was adorned or deified with three hundred and sixty idols of men, eagles, lions, and antelopes, 
and the most conspicuous was the statue of Hebal, of red agate, holding in his hand seven arrows without heads or feathers, the instruments and symbols of profane divination. But this statue was a monument of Syrian arts. The devotion of the ruder ages was content with a pillar or a tablet, and the rocks of the desert were hewn into gods or altars in imitation of the black stone of Mecca, which is deeply tainted with the reproach of an idolatrous origin. From Japan to Peru, the use of sacrifice has universally prevailed, and the votary has expressed his gratitude or fear by destroying or consuming, in honor of the gods, the dearest and most precious of their gifts. The life of a man is the most precious oblation to deprecate a public calamity. The altars of Phoenicia and Egypt, of Rome and Carthage, have been polluted with human gore. The cruel practice was long preserved among the Arabs. In the third century, a boy was annually sacrificed by the tribe of the Dumatians, and a royal captive was piously slaughtered by the prince of the Saracens, the ally and soldier of the emperor Justinian. A parent who drags his son to the altar exhibits the most painful and sublime effort of fanaticism. The deed or the intention was sanctified by the example of saints and heroes, and the father of Muhammad himself was devoted by a rash vow, and hardly ransomed by the equivalent of a hundred camels. In the time of ignorance, the Arabs, like the Jews and Egyptians, abstained from the taste of swine's flesh. They circumcised their children at the age of puberty. The same customs, without censure, or the precept of the Koran, have been silently transmitted to their posterity and proselytes. It has been sagaciously conjectured that the artful legislator indulged the stubborn prejudices of his countrymen. It is more simple to believe that he adhered to the habits and opinions of his youth, without foreseeing that a practice congenial to the climate of Mecca might become useless or inconvenient on the banks of the Danube or the Volga. End of chapter 50, part 2.